So for those of you that were here um, yesterday afternoon and learned about medical malpractice from Dr. Berman, um, he's back talking um, about another subject here. And he's a voluntary uh, professor at the uh, University of Miami. And he's also serving as a member on the board of the AAD. So be extra nice to him. Here he <laughs> here's Dr. Berman. Well, good morning. I'm very impressed that you guys are up so early in the morning. <laughs> um, what I've been asked to do is to uh, discuss drug actions, reactions, and interactions. And unfortunately, it's, this is going to be in the format of a pop quiz. <laughs> uh, but no one's going to look over your shoulder. But you may want to actually write down what you think the answers are, and then you'll find out the answers immediately within a couple of seconds, uh, just to get a sense of where your strengths are and where your uh, weaknesses may be. I just got a signal that I forgot to turn on my lapel. Okay. So let's uh, go over a, an example question, just so you get a sense of the format. Uh, the artist's disease is treated with which medication? Well, you need to understand that the artist of this painting is Paul Clay, and Paul Clay had scleroderma. And scleroderma is indeed can be treated with bosantin. Bosantin is an endothelin receptor antagonist, and it's been shown to help prevent digital ulcerations in patients with scleroderma. This was just an example of how we're going to do it. <laughs> uh, most of these questions are not straightforward. These are secondary and tertiary type questions. So you needed to know who the artist was, you needed to know that the artist had scleroderma, and then you had to know the answer of which drug is used for scleroderma. Okay. So let's get into it. Which of the following potential ocular adverse events of a medication used to treat this disease is most likely to be irreversible? So if you want to, you could write down what you think the disease is, the diagnosis, and the diagnosis is lupus erythematosus. And therefore, you have to realize that you may be using anti-malarials for the treatment of lupus. And there, you'd need to know which of these ocular changes are irreversible. And the answer is D, central scotoma. So again, using the anti-malarials, let's go over some of the ocular toxicities. One, there can be uh, corneal deposits, but those are usually reversible and just cause little halos when exposed to the light. Uh, the neuromuscular toxicity is a direct toxicity of the anti-malarials to the muscles in the eye, and that causes a reduction in accommodative power, and this is the earliest toxicity of using anti-malarials, and that's reversible. But then you have true retinopathy, and it may or may not be reversible, and it is characterized by a scotoma, that's a loss of visual acuity, and it's a central scotoma, and therefore it's been characterized as a bullseye scotoma loss of acuity. And it's been associated uh, to a much greater degree with chloroquine than with plaquenil hydro hydroxychloroquine. Which of the following drugs is most likely to cause this specific type of eruption? So you have to figure out what this diagnosis is, and it turns out to be a drug-induced pemphigus foliaceus, and the answer would be captopril. 
Captopril, well, I think many of us know that penicillamine classically has been associated with the development of and inducing pemphigus foliaceus. But in addition to penicillamine, which is the most common cause, uh, ACE inhibitors, angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitors like captopril have also been associated with the induction of pemphigus foliaceus. And it's because of the thiol, the sulfur moiety on the ACE inhibitor that it seems to be associated with the development of pemphigus foliaceus. If it has an amino group, an amide group, then it doesn't cause pemphigus foliaceus. It's associated with pemphigus vulgaris, and that occurs with enalapril. So captopril gives pemphigus foliaceus, enalapril is associated with pemphigus vulgaris, and that's the mechanism for that. Um, of the following drugs, which one would be most likely to cause the clinical presentation? Diagnosis, gingival hyperplasia, and the answer would be amlodipine, which is Norvasc. Again, probably the most common cause for gingival hyperplasia we're all familiar with is dilantin, phenytoin, but in, this, in addition, calcium channel blockers can also induce this gingival hyperplasia, which is due to increased fibroblast proliferation. It takes a couple of months after starting the uh, drug, and only one subset of calcium channel blockers cause the gingival hyperplasia, those that have dihydroxypyridine, and therefore Norvas causes it, but Verapamil, if you need to change the drug, one could change it to verapamil because that doesn't have the dihydroxypyridine and is not associated with the induction of fibroblast proliferation and gingival hyperplasia. This patient developed distal motor weakness of both hands and feet. Which of the following drugs presently used by this patient is most likely to be associated with this type of neuropathy? Any diagnosis? This is lepromatous leprosy, and therefore you have to know that you may be considering uh, using dapsone in uh, leprosy, and leprosy can cause a neuropathy. Let's go over some of the peripheral neuropathies, the neurological side effects of using dapsone in general. There is this peripheral neuropathy. It's a motor, much more than a sensory neuropathy and it can be induced by either very high doses for very short-term use of dapsone, but it can also occur with low doses of dapsone if it's a chronic exposure to the drug. Uh, the good news is most patients recover but can take months to do so. The other neurologic changes with dapsone is acute psychosis and retinal damage directly from the dapsone, and that is a uh, overdose of dapsone, it's not a normal side effect of dapsone. Which of the following agents is associated with this clinical presentation? And I think we see here, all 10 finger nail beds is kind of a bluish color. So this is minocycline nail pigmentation. Now all these drugs can cause pigmentary alterations. The hydroxychloroquine, the plaquenols associated, associated with a brown-gray discoloration of the nail bed rather than that bluish discoloration. Bleomycin is characterized by flagellate pigmentation, usually on the trunk, usually darker in pigmentation. Hydroxyurea induces streaks of the nail bed, melanonychia, and it is also a phenomenon that's characterized by 
the use of AZT, the melanonychia. And the minocycline, as I mentioned, is characterized by this bluish discoloration. One can get the scars of acne taking on a bluish hue or the nail beds as we just saw. Which of the following medications may be used to decrease methemoglobinemia associated with the drug of choice for this blistering eruption? So what's this blistering eruption? Dermatitis herpetiformis, usually on the elbows, extensive surfaces also on the buttocks, also the uh, back of the neck. So now you know, had the diagnosis, so then you have to realize, well, what would we consider uh, to use as a therapy? What is the standard of care? Well, Dapsone is the standard of care for the treatment of DH. And then DH, uh, and Dapsone is associated with induction of methemoglobinemia. Well, how could you block it? Well, it's cimetidine. And why would cimetidine do that? Well, Dapsone is metabolized by N-acetylation, and N-hydroxylation. Unfortunately, the N-hydroxylation induces a metabolite that is toxic and active and reactive. Now, you're able to block this metabolite because the cimetidine blocks the enzyme that causes the N-hydroxylation, so therefore you don't make the metabolite, therefore you don't get the toxicity. And what's the toxicity you have spared? Well, you could uh, reduce the uh, methemoglobinemia. And because you don't metabolize the dapsone with this N-hydroxylation, you get higher levels of the dapsone. But it's not toxic, because you're not making this toxic metabolite. So there's no increase in hemolysis, no methemoglobinemia, if you give them the cimetidine. And you don't lose any of the activity of the dapsone. The dose of immunosuppressant drug used to treat this eruption must be significantly reduced if the patient is on which of the following medications. Any diagnosis in your minds? Well, is pemphigoid. What drug would interact with which of these drugs? Well, the answer is allopurinol you have to watch out for because you may be using Imuran as an immunosuppressant for the bullous pemphigoid. Well, what's this interaction between Imuran and allopurinol? Now, xanthine oxidase is involved in the degradation of Imuran, azothioprine, as well as the active metabolite, 6-mecaptopurine. So that enzyme breaks down the Imuran. It turns out that allopurinol is a potent inhibitor of this enzyme. So if you're inhibiting the enzyme, you don't get the degradation, and therefore you get higher levels of the molecules, and therefore you get toxicity. And what is the toxicity of having too much of the uh, imuran, pancytopenia, and therefore if the patient has to be on the allopurinol, and you're going to consider using imuran, you need to reduce the dose of the Imuran by 75%. Otherwise, you'll get pancytopenia and toxicity. This patient's seizure medication for this skin disorder 
was the patient was then treated with a medication for the skin disorder. What's the skin disorder? Well, it's acne, all right? So you have to start thinking, well, what acne drugs I may use and what acne drugs may interact with a seizure medication that this patient could have been on. Well, all the drugs that are listed are drugs we use in acne, but which one is going to elevate this patient's seizure medication? Well, you have to know that the seizure medication was probably Tegretol, and if that's the case, then erythromycin is the bad actor here. And why is that? Well, the macrolides, including erythromycin, may interact with Tegretol, and it inhibits the uh, cytochrome P450-3A4. By inhibiting that cytochrome P450, you don't metabolize the Tegretol. It can also interact and allow for an increased level of the HMG-CoA reductase inhibitors like Lipitor, Mevacor, and Zorcor. You can get toxicity from that. You can get rhabdomyolysis if they're on those drugs. Interestingly, it will also inhibit the metabolism of cyclosporin. And when cyclosporin first came out, it was very expensive and hard to find. And there was a consideration of actually co-administering a little erythromycin with the cyclosporin in order to inhibit the metabolism of the cyclosporin. You would get higher levels of systemic cyclosporin, and it would be cheaper just by giving cheap erythromycin. Clever idea. Unfortunately, the erythromycin is not absorbed in everybody similarly, and it was completely unpredictable of what your cyclosporin levels are going to be. But it was an attempt. And also Xanax can also be inhibited from being metabolized, and therefore, if one is on erythromycin, you can get toxicity from all these drugs. Erythromycin is the worst actor because it inhibits the cytochrome P450 to the greatest degree. Clarithromycin is about the same, and both are much worse than azithromycin, and therefore azithromycin can generally be used as an alternative to erythromycin if the patients are on Lipitor or on Tegretol. Which of the following agents used to the treatment of this skin disorder exhibits the highest incidence and greatest risk for marked elevation of serum triglyceride levels? Yet a serum triglyceride lowering drug, gemfibrozole, has to be avoided. Well, what's the diagnosis? That's cutaneous T-cell lymphoma. And I guess all these drugs could be used for T-cell lymphoma, but the one we're talking about is bixarotene. Now, yesterday we had to talk about isotretinoin, a retinoid, and it's not clear what the receptor is for isotretinoin. For acetretin, it has very weak retinoic acid receptor binding. Tazarotene, that's in Tazarac, uh, binds to the beta and gamma receptor. And it turns out that bixarotene, that's used for cutaneous T-cell lymphoma, binds to all RXRs, alpha, beta, and gamma, and therefore has the highest chance of inducing systemic levels of triglycerides. A couple of things about bixarotene. You would like to lower the triglycerides with lopid. But it turns out that if one uses 
lopid at the same time as bizarotene, you get very high levels of the bizarotene, which is a little unclear why that happens, because it turns out that lopid inhibits cytochrome P450, 2C8, and 2C9, which has nothing to do with the metabolism of bizarotene. So it's not through that mechanism. It must be through some other mechanism that gemfibrozole induces high levels of the bizarotene. You don't want high levels of bizarotene because it's toxic. And one should know if one is going to use bizarotene for the treatment of cutaneous diesel lymphoma, every patient sooner or later will develop what's called central hypothyroidism because the bizarotene inhibits TSH releasing hormone. And uh, it is a inevitable side effect of bizarotene. But it would come on even more quickly if you had very high levels of bizarotene. Okay. Therapy with an immunosuppressant drug for this cutaneous daughter is planned. What's the disease? Well, you see these bullous lesions on an erythematous background. That should be bullous pomphagoid, and it is. So you're thinking of an immunosuppressant. Well, which enzyme level can you measure for the immunosuppressant that you're thinking of using? The answer is TMT, which is an enzyme involved in the metabolism of Imuran. So again, you'd be considering using Imuran for the treatment of bullous pamphagoid. If you're thinking of using Imuran, you would consider testing this enzyme. So let's talk a little about Imuran or azothiaprine metabolism. It's an inactive prodrug, Imuran. You have to activate it to 6MP, and that's done by an enzyme, HGPRTase. Okay. On the other side of the coin, Imuran can be metabolized into inactive metabolites by xanthine oxidase. Remember, we talked about that earlier. That's inhibited by allopurinol. You have to reduce it by 75%. But there's also a third enzyme that's involved in the inactivation of imuran. And that's the enzyme you can measure. And that's TPMT. And it turns out that among populations, there's polymorphism. So some people have very high levels of the enzyme. Most people have normal levels of the enzyme. But some people have very low levels of the enzyme. So if you have a low level of this enzyme, you don't metabolize the imuran into an inactive metabolite. Therefore, you're going to get toxicity from the imuran. And it turns out that about 1 in 300 have very low activity of this enzyme. So of those patients, you would have to lower the dose of the imuran you're planning to use. Otherwise, they can develop bone marrow depression and suppression. Next question. Isn't this a lovely thing to do at 7.30 in the morning? <laughs> in treating this patient's urinary tract infection, which of the following antibiotics should be avoided due to significant risk of interaction with the oral medication being used to treat the skin disorder. Well, what's the skin disorder? Psoriasis. Okay. Which antibiotics should you avoid? 
Well, you may be treating this patient with methotrexate. You have to avoid trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole, Bactrim. Okay. What happens is it, uh, the mixture of Bactrim and methotrexate increases blood dyscrasias, and Mark Levall has described the combination of methotrexate and Bactrim as the Kevorkian treatment for psoriasis, because these patients often die. So you don't want to have that Bactrim when the patient is on methotrexate. A lot of words on this slide, unfortunately. A 25-year-old HIV-infected man is begun on a, on a Bacavir. Three weeks later, he presents with a rash and fever. Which statement is correct? Well, again, we're going to be talking about the Bacavir hypersensitivity. And it turns out that the presence of multiple organ involvement increases the likelihood that we're talking about true abacavir hypersensitivity. Well, who cares? I mean, it's just a drug eruption, right? Well, it turns out that abacavir, commercially called Ziogen, is a nardi. It's used in HIV-positive patients. And the hypersensitivity syndrome is characterized mostly by, most commonly, by fever, and a rash that I just showed you, kind of a boring maculopapular drug eruption rash, but can be associated with GI symptoms and lethargy and respiratory symptoms as well. The reason you worry about it is that lethal anaphylactic reactions to abacavir in patients with abacavir hypersensitivity have been reported. And in fact, uh, if you stop the drugs, Let's say a patient is referred to you from another physician for this rash, and you say, well, it looks like a drug rash, and the most recent thing, about three, four weeks ago, you started this abacavir. Stop using the abacavir. That's okay. The rash goes away, and then the patient comes back, and you say, okay, uh, let's start the drug again. That's a bad idea because those patients die. So abacavir is one hypersensitivity syndrome you want to watch out. They've actually identified what the haptine is. It's an aldehyde of the abacavir itself. One can actually do patch testing to see if the patient truly has hypersensitivity to the abacavir. I don't strongly recommend that because you're playing with fire here. Just tell the phys physician who is referring, uh, maybe you want to try a different antiretroviral, okay? And unfortunately, prednisone, at least in one study, was ineffective in blocking this hypersensitivity reaction. So it's something you want to avoid. Now, I'm sure all of you are very interested in pathology of the brain. This is a uh, question about which drug has been not been associated with progression of this neuropathologic disease. Anybody give the diagnosis of this disease? Well, you know, I bet you could if you look at the answers, or the possible answers. This is progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy, PML. And you may remember that the first one, A, is Raptiva. Where is Raptiva now? It's off the market. Why? Because it's been associated with PML. 
So the question is, which one of these is not associated with PML, which is a lethal disease and there's no treatment for it? And the answer is ritonavir is the only good guy in this list. And it's actually been reported to treat PML in HIV-positive patients who developed this. Which drug has been associated with this condition? So on the left-hand side picture is four months after taking this new medication, and then on the right-hand side, two months later. I think it's pretty obvious on the left side, there's hair depigmentation going on. So which of this, these drugs have been associated with this hair depigmentation? And the answer is erlotinib. It turns out that hair pigmentation requires melanin transfer from cortical keratinocytes to the hair. That melanin transfer requires a uh, kinase called C-kit. Well, erlotinib inhibits C-kit. So if you inhibit the C-kit, you don't get the melanin transfer. You don't get the melanin transfer, you don't get color in your hair, and you get ultimately depigmentation of the hair. You stop the drug, the C-kit gets reactivated, and you get hair repigmentation. It's used for lung cancer, in case anyone's asking. Which of the following medications is most likely to cause this specific type of eruption? You see these yellow, almost keratotic, and I can even tell you they're painful lesions acrally and on pressure surfaces. This is the hand-foot skin reaction to multi-kinase inhibitors. That's a mouthful early in the morning. And the answer is serafinib. Well, what's serafinib? Well, it's a medication that inhibits many different uh, kinases, ultimately blocking tumor angiogenesis and vascular endothelial growth factor receptors. And it also inhibits C-kit. We just talked about the hair. And it's used for renal cell carcinoma and hepatocellular carcinoma. But let's talk a little about this hand-foot skin reaction. In one study, 60% of the patients who were on serafinib developed this hand-foot skin reaction. None of the placebo patients developed this during the same period of time. So it wasn't like the underlying disease that they were being treated. It was the drug that was inducing this. Comes on relatively rapidly, usually within a month. And it's characterized by acral paresthesias, decreased tolerance to hot substances and warm water. And it's symmetrical erythema, usually acrally. They can become edematous and so edematous that the patients complain, complain of pain and actually vesicles and bulla can develop on their hands, ultimately resulting in desquamation and fissures on the hands and feet and the palms and soles. And these hyperkeratotic, yellow, painful plaques at sites of pressure, that's the whole spectrum of this hand, foot, skin reaction that's caused by serafinib. And I think this may be even the last question. 
<laughs> Treatment of which agent may result in this drug reaction? Well, you know, if you look at the lower left-hand picture, maybe that'll help you what the diagnosis is. These are little red flat-top papules, kind of in a row, in a Kebnerized fashion. This is like in Planus. And adalimumab has been associated with that as an inhibitor of TNF. Lichen planus has been reported to occur in TNF inhibition by a number of agents that are listed here, including infliximab and etanercept, as well as adalimumab. It comes on within two months of therapy. I don't know if any of you have had the experience of patients who have rheumatoid arthritis and are put on TNF inhibitors, there's a subset of those patients that develop psoriasis, which is kind of weird because we use it to treat psoriasis. But it's a very well-established phenomenon of developing psoriasis after TNF inhibition in patients who'd never had psoriasis. If one biopsies that psoriasis, although clinically it looks like psoriasis, it has some histologic uh, similarities to lichen planus. And it turns out that it probably has to do with uh, activation and uh, increased diapedesis of plasmacytoid dendritic cells into the lesions. And interferon alpha has been implicated in the mechanism of this psoriatic lichen planus-like reaction to TNF inhibitors. So. I'm sorry to burdened you so early in the morning with some of these heavy uh, interactions, but I think some of them, uh, you may agree, are important to know, especially that abacavir, you don't want a patient to die. Um, so I'm happy to try to answer any questions uh, on this topic, but uh, again, I want to thank you for getting up so early in the morning in order to be um, Uh, <laughs> burdened by such a heavy lecture so early in the morning. I was trying to think of a nice word. Thank you very much. Yes. Yeah, um, I'm wondering, what do, you, do you see the rash that's associated with um, treatment for hep C with the ribavirin and interferon? I'm sorry. People again? being treated for hep C, ribavirin, and interferon, do you see that rash that's associated with that? And In, inducing interferon? Yeah, with, when you're treating someone with hep C, the treatment, I often see patients who have a rash associated with the, the ribavirin and the interferon that they're being treated with. I, if I understand, then I, I don't think I'm getting the question, but I, I, I agree that it's the interferon that's probably inducing the okay, problem. Okay, that's what yeah. I was wondering. And then how do you, so if, if the interferon's causing the rash with these hep C patients, what do you recommend treating with? Just topical steroids or? Uh, I treat the patients with uh, steroids. Yeah, okay. And I try to do it with topical steroids initially. Uh, but again, it's a balance. Most of these reactions are not life-threatening and they really need the drug more than they uh, need to right. stop the local skin reactions. Yeah. So I try to 
um, minimize the skin reactions, but I usually don't ask the referring physician to change their underlying therapy because the hepatitis C is really crucial. Have you ever seen anyone develop um, psoriasis with that? I had a patient. To develop what? Just psoriasis with that? Um, yes, I have actually. Okay, yeah, I had a patient yeah. with that too. Okay, yes. thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Well, I'll be around if anyone wants to ask me any more questions. Again, thank you very much for getting up so early in the morning.